hey, everyone here at the investing stuff we should know. We have a, a really cool guest. This is uh, Charles Seaman. And he kind of mentioned that he, for, I think it's really cool, actually, he has a weekly or actually on a weekend, a, a free underwriting session. Underwriting, as we know, for a lot of people is you're certain you don't really know what it is for whether you're a newbie or less or more experienced. Super important to have those fundamentals hammered out. But Charles, thank you for being, other, aside from that, thank you for being here and sharing your story with us today at the Investing Stuff You Know podcast. Johnny, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome, man. Awesome. I always ask people, of course, they, they might ask, why we should we listen to Charles? Why should we give this person credibility in even a half hour of our time? Give us a little background on where you came from and what you've done before you kind of start getting deeper into the real estate space or Absolutely. investing space. So my path probably started a little different than most in the sense that I wasn't necessarily seeking to be in real estate or commercial real estate. It was more so what I say is I was 20 years old and I was young, dumb, and broke. And I needed a job. And at that time, I wound up working for a gentleman who I was a friend of the family. And I didn't really know what role I would play when I went to work there. And what I found out pretty quick is that my role would involve a lot of different things. And eventually, that role expanded to help him manage all of his different businesses and properties. And he owned businesses, multiple properties, all commercial real estate, a mix of multifamily, office, retail, different things. So it gave me great experience and great exposure and an opportunity to work with and learn from somebody who was incredibly successful. Yeah. Where so, well, can you give us yeah. a can you give us a location where this happened, Charles? Absolutely. New York City. New York City. Brooklyn, <laughs> if the accent doesn't give it away. And, I didn't want to insult you. Like I think I hear an accent, but I wanted to make right. sure you had the opportunity to defend yourself before I just start <laughs> leveling accusations here. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Hmm. So we know that the we know Brooklyn obviously that New York City is a huge market. Just first, I've and I've interviewed a few people on the show that have done or worked in New York City, Charles. What are some unique challenges and actually some unique things that you can learn that you have learned from operating in a tough environment like New York City? So many people, so many regulations and rules and laws and these by gigantic high rises. That's got to be that's got to be different than somebody who's running a duplex in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Give us the give us some goods there. Give us the goods. I would agree with you on that. I think the biggest difference, and this is probably true everywhere, but I feel like it's amplified in New York, and maybe it's just the personality of New Yorkers that kind of goes with it. But <laughs> you have to develop toughness. And you have to be gritty and willing to do what it takes to survive because there's it's, sometimes it can be a very ruthless environment, but it's a good teacher. <laughs> so it's like uh, the jungle, it's like the man made jungle, and you better, you got to survive. It. If you're not going to survive, then you got to leave or keel over or something. If you're going to thrive <laughs> and be successful, then it's going to, like you said, it's going to breed a certain level of toughness. So uh, yep. give us a funny or just an anecdotal example of something that you, that young Charles got smacked over the face with and had to learn some toughness. I'm sure there's multiple instances there, but a couple of projects, one in particular, there was development and anytime you're dealing with that, there's always a lot of bureaucracy, yes. a lot of building codes and different inspectors that you need to appease. And it's always interesting as different inspectors that tell you to do the same thing different ways. And then you do it to satisfy one and you get a different inspector that comes out and he says it's all wrong and you have to rip it out and do it again. Yeah. Uh, so there's many times I've had instances like that. And New York certainly has no shortage of that. <laughs> well, absolutely, man. I see here you're an operation manager, operations manager for quite a few years. I imagine you started probably at a beginning stage and you you, you kept ranking up or getting promoted within the organization. Tell yeah, us that, that journey. That exactly sums it up. So when I first started there, I wasn't really sure what that role would entail. And I don't think my boss was fully sure either. So we developed it as we went. He was in the process of growing his businesses at that time. 
and he knew that he needed more help. So it was just figuring where I could fit in. And for better or worse, but probably worse for my social life, but good for my professional life, I never said no to anything. And because of that, it gave me a lot of learning opportunities because he would always throw more and more at me. And I say, okay, keep giving it to me. So that way I'll figure it out and we'll learn and we'll get it done. Awesome, man. And uh, how did you, so as that role progressed here and you, like you said, you never said no to anything. Did you have a particular goal? Was that just like, you just like doing work or you were ambitious or what was the, what was the kind of the underlying motivation or philosophy to just always never say no? The initial thing when I first started there was as, as at 20 years old, my mother became disabled and I knew that I needed to go out and get a real job. I was just a bank teller before and, and yeah. not going to lose a bank teller, but you don't make a lot of money in the bank teller profession. So I knew that I needed just, to- You just put on your LinkedIn profile that you're a banker. You're right. Right. <laughs> That's the absolute <laughs> truth. So I know I needed to do something to pay the bills when she became disabled. And that's what led me to initially going this route and then wind up staying there. And then after I started there, what I realized is a couple of things. The relationship with my boss, even though at times it was contentious, it almost became like a father-son type relationship. So there was a lot of a lot of tough love, for lack of yeah. a better term, yeah. and a lot of good learning experiences. A lot of times during the daytime. He had other businesses that we would focus on that at nighttime, we would focus more on his real estate. And a lot of times it would just be he and I in the office. So being that oh, wow. I never complained. And a lot of nights I'd be until 12, 1, 2 in the morning. I was like, okay, I got to sit with him and he would teach me, okay, this is how you read a contract. This is what you look for. This is, you know, how you negotiate something. So they were invaluable lessons. Absolutely, man. No, that's amazing. And then of course, like you said, the tough, gritty nature of a large city, so much competition, so many people. I can only imagine if you had captured, been able to capture those lessons, there'd be a whole book or podcast series just to itself with those kinds of you know, those amazing learnings that someone older and more experienced big market could share. Oh which yeah, is, absolutely. You know, of course, they're all distilled in you now, which is pretty cool. As you grew and saw and learned and observed, Charles, what, how did then, how did that trigger or lead you into perhaps seeing that you could do that yourself, being a owner, a general partner, that kind of stuff. Uh, the, uh, the mindset of an employee to something that actually can lead and do it themselves is not necessarily an easy bridge to gap. You know, some people are very comfortable there or they just never have the vision to go beyond that. What was, how did you break through that glass ceiling or whatever the term you want to use and say to yourself, you know what, I'm smart enough to do this. What happened there? What was that transition? Funny because it definitely was a transition. And I'd like to say it happened quickly, but it didn't. When I first started there, I initially intended to stay there two to three years, then go out and do my own thing. And when I started there, I was 20 years old. And what happened is, as life happens sometimes, I started making a little more money. I started getting more responsibility. Maybe I thought I was important. And then all of a sudden, two to three years turned into 14. Yeah. And around the time I was turning 30, I thought to myself, I said, boy, is this what I want to do the rest of my life? And I said, I wouldn't have been poor if I did. I wouldn't have been rich. I would have been somewhere in between. Yes. And, and I said, I could have a decent living, but is this really what I want to do the rest of my life? I kept coming back to no, but I said, okay, now the best opportunity I have. So then you know, around 2014, 2015, I started looking at single family wholesaling and investing. And I really didn't want to do single family. And, and you can make a lot of money with single family. It's just not for me. Uh, but I also knew I didn't have the money to go out there and do commercial multifamily myself. So I said, okay, that's not really an option right now. Then I even hired a mentor for single family. And I worked at it for a little bit, but I determined I just didn't like it and I wasn't good at it. And like many people, I'm sure like many of the listeners, I would go to different real estate meetup events in New York at the time. And I would go to a, a good number of events. I'd exchange business cards. I'd even follow up. But one of the things that, that came to my mind after a while, and my mentor that I hired for single family certainly brought this to my attention is, why do you go to these events? 
Because yes. you need to have a purpose. You can't just go. There has to be something. Such a good so, question, man. Like, we have to ask, ask ourselves about that, about right. everything. Actually, we should be asking ourselves about that on everything. But also when we start getting into the real estate space or game or whatnot, and really make sure you have that question, ask the question and get be disciplined and get find an answer of some kind sooner than later. But yeah. go ahead, you're meant to challenge yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. So what I realized is when I was going to these different events after I started thinking about what I wanted out of them, I'd have people that I'd meet and I'd give them advice and they would take my advice and they'd make money with it. And like I'd see them <laughs> the next month at the meetup event and they say, yeah, you give such great advice. And I'm thinking to myself, huh, why, why is everybody making money with my advice except for me? Yes. And I said, what am I doing wrong? I must have a mental block because obviously if these people aren't even as far along as I am, what's the difference? And I said, it's mindset, right? It's got to be mindset that they have a belief that they can do it and they're yeah. going out there and they're doing it. And here I am, even though I have some skill and some expertise with it, at least general knowledge of running a business and just common sense for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, common and, business sense. Yeah, for sure. Common sense, but also common business right. sense, which is what people are trying to get more of. Because like, so It took a lot of retraining myself. And you had to tell yourself, every time you think to yourself and say, no, I can't do this. No, I'm not worthy. You have to retrain yourself and say, you know what? I can do this. I can be successful with this. I can be, or I am a successful real estate investor. So sometimes like, speaking it into existence helps you start seeing it and being able to visualize it and getting ahead. Yes. Yeah. I love that, man. Yeah. Okay. So then that was kind of this, you told us about the, that intermediate stage between Charles, the employee and learning a lot, of course, and doing a bunch of more and more respect, sharing and getting more and more responsibility to seeing the transition and how that happened. Then what happened when you actually became, did you start out as a passive investor or as a lead? And then what was that? What did that first property look like for you? Good question. So it took about two years to get. So initially I was still working my full-time job when I started in the syndication space. So I started in syndication in June, 2017. And at that point, it was very part-time, maybe 10 to 15 hours a week. I was probably working anywhere from 60 to 90 hours a week in my full-time job. And I knew that I didn't have a lot of time, but I knew that whatever time I had to use productively and efficiently. Yes. So a lot of times I would get home late from work. So I knew that I couldn't call anybody at the times I get home. Nobody's going to want to speak to me at those times. So normally didn't take lunch breaks where I work, but I said, okay, I'm going to have to start taking something because whatever I need to do on the phone, I need to be able to do during normal hours. I would take whatever I could get, whether it was 10 minutes, 15 minutes, if I got a half an hour break, and I would just schedule my calls in advance if I had to speak to a broker or an attorney or whoever it may have been. So that way I could just start building relationships and just moving forward. So then after that, and then at nighttime, I'd go home and underwrite deals and just do things that didn't require me speaking to people. So after about two years, I came to the realization that, okay, I've made a lot of progress. I'm a lot further ahead than where I was, but I'm not really where I want to be. And at the pace I'm going, it's probably going to take me a decade to close a deal. So I decided <laughs> to leave my full-time job at the end of May, 2019 and totally uproot my life and move to Charlotte, which is one oh, wow. of the markets. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, let me just put myself right in the center because how do you learn the market better than living and working in it every day? Yeah. But ironically, a few days after I moved down here, I got my first deal in the contract. That's and incredible, man. It wasn't, it wasn't in Charlotte. It was in the Atlanta market, but close enough. <laughs> but it worked out with that. And then about three months after, we closed. So yeah. thankfully, the first deal, knock on wood, actually went pretty, it went smooth in most regards. Yeah. You know, we didn't find any major items that were unexpected during due diligence. We didn't really have any grief from the seller or the lender. The only real challenge we had was raising capital. 
And like many people starting out, we were probably, my partners and I at the time were probably overly ambitious and yeah. maybe overly or falsely confident in our ability of what we'd be able to do. <laughs> and we, the raise was roughly 2.2 million. And we said, oh, this shouldn't be that big of a deal. We should be able to go out and raise that. And that sounds really good in theory. And then as we're nearing the end of our due diligence period, we're saying, boy, we don't have anything raised or committed yet. We got a problem. And we almost thought about pulling the plug on it because we're saying this could be a real mess. We're going to lose all this risk capital. Yeah. And this could be a major problem. Where did you, can I ask real quick, where did you find your partners? Were they from, presumably from New York then? No. So, so ironically, one lived in Charlotte and the other lived in Pennsylvania. I'd met them okay. at, at, an, at an RE mentor event, one of Dave Lindell's events. We all came up through their system and then we connected a few times at different events and then we wound up partnering. Awesome, man. Yeah, awesome. So yeah, the first deal, you moved down there. I love that action, that bold action just uprooted your life and just boom, went right into the middle of the heart of one of the beasts of yeah. a large city that's growing and it's definitely a target market for savvy investors, like you said, Raleigh. So then what, what does today look like? So that's obviously like kind of your, your, your growth trajectory, your path, your yeah. bold action of taking that. And then what is uh, what does it look like right now for Charles? And what is actually looking forward in 2020, 2023 and 24? What does that look like? So the way I describe it, I say, Every time, I want to say this is kind of like a video game in the sense that every time you close a deal, it's like leveling up. The first deal was to put something on the scoreboard and it may not be a home run. It did work out good, but it may not be a home run, but it's to get something on the scoreboard. So at least you, you, or at least get on base, maybe not even get on the scoreboard. Maybe that's the wrong analogy. Yeah. Maybe you're hitting the single and you're getting on first base. Then the second deal advances you, you advance the runner and now you're closer to scoring. So little by little, you're building up. And with each deal you close, you're getting access to different deals that you wouldn't have had access to beforehand. You're getting access to investors that may not have wanted to invest in you beforehand. So different opportunities present themselves because now all of a sudden you have more track record and more credibility. And then as you go full cycle on your first deal, which I did last year, then you see even more opportunities open up because sometimes you'll have people that will follow you, especially with social media nowadays for two, three, four years and never say anything. Uh, but then all of a sudden they catch wind that, oh, this person. The famous LinkedIn, Facebook, blah, blah, blah. Lurk. There, right. There's the people that lurk out there. I see that Charles doing some stuff. I'm going right. to see him every day. It's going to gradually build psychological confidence in these people that just observe and watch and yep. uh, are just curious. What is Charles up to? What's he doing? So that's it's a very profound phenomenon I've also have observed in, in myself and others around me. Yeah, it definitely goes a long way. So then fast forward to last year, we started out aggressively buying Then we cooled it off when we saw the change in market conditions. Yes. So we closed four deals in the first five months last year, and then we put the brakes on for a bit. Now we're looking to be very aggressive this year, but smartly aggressive, not foolishly, because I still think there's a lot of people that may get, they may wind up in bad deals if they wind up letting their guard down a little bit. So the goal that we have collectively this year, since then I'm actually part of a new team, Cashflow Champs now, and we've known each other for probably two, three years now, and the team came together initially virtually. I hadn't even met the team, the team or vice versa until after we actually partnered. We know yeah. each other in Zoom meetings and phone calls, but we never I, met in person until maybe three or four months after we partnered. Yeah, yeah, nice. And the byproducts of the COVID rolling. The goal we have this year is $500 million in acquisition volume. That's not $500 million in my pocket, or my balance, even though that sounds great, with $500 million in acquisition volume. So it's going to be a combination of deals. It could be $10, $50 million deals. It could be $20, $25 million deals. But we want to do bigger deals and we want to do more deals. And we think that the next two years in particular are going to provide excellent opportunities to do that. 
Amazing, man. Let's talk about something we you chatted about pre-show here, and that was the value and the need for hard work. So we're pivoting. So we talked about maybe the traditional stuff of kind of the path, the growth, the trajectory, which is all interesting and gives people context and the ability to see themselves through you or vicariously through the, what you've done and some other things and something they can emulate what they find to something that, 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 that motivates them. Let's talk about hard work. We both know sharing our story in a like a, in a reasonable storyline sounds like just like you just did this and you just did that and it just happened and then this or that happened. Talk to me about the value and the need, how hard it is and how oftentimes this is a really tr- hard, hard road and difficult path to follow. Yeah, absolutely. What I would say is a few things. One is syndication can be very lucrative, but none of that lucrativeness is at the beginning. So it's going to take you some time to build up. So what I would tell anybody is, depending on your financial situation, it's probably not a great idea to jump into it full time unless you have some other source of income that's going to be floating your lifestyle. So there's going to be a lot of effort that's needed. And if you're in a position where you can go out and you can hire, then that's great. But if you're not, then you and your partners are probably going to be doing a lot of that front end work. And that's going to be finding deals. It's going to be the underwriting. It's going to be asset management. And all these things take time. They take good amounts of time if you're going to do them right. They can do a, a mediocre job, but then you're going to get a mediocre result. So if yes. you want great results or exceptional results, that's going to take time, effort, and for lack of a better term, blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. And I think I just, and I think that I love that your opening statement there. And that is syndication can be lucrative, which not will be or guaranteed or often is, like you say, but it happens not at the beginning. That's so important here. It takes a lot of work to get there, to get the team, to get the momentum. And we're essentially your, the reason to get into real estate, and this is my contention. Tell me, you can give me your feedback on this, Charles, is you don't necessarily, oftentimes you don't really need to be lucky or super smart or just stumble into the right team. It's luck amount is low, but the hard about the hard work is high for success. It's all about doing what does it take to get to success? Will it be like just get lucky that one time or this or that or the other? So you don't need a ton of luck, but you do need a lot of hard work to achieve typically really compelling success. So I think that's why, and just it's because of taxes and market and leverage and these different things, underlying fundamentals of real estate. Of course, you're servicing a human need as well. All those things taken together, make real estate compelling, but then what are the, what's the business cycle? So there's lots of businesses we could open up, could be software or sales or plumbing and all these different things here, but like the business of real estate, the business of multifamily or apartments is successful because of all these underlying factors, but establish a successful business is the a critical component is the hard work piece. Would you, what's your take on that? Those that kind of statement or those kind of, those observations? I think you hit the nail on the head. I say the same thing as well. I say, you know what? It's not like we're doing brain surgery. We're not doing rocket scientists. You don't need a PhD. Heck, I only have a high school diploma. So you don't even need an associate's degree. But you need to be willing to put the work and the effort and the time in. And, you know, what I say in this business is very similar to what you said. And I think you're you're very on point with it is that it's just going to take repetition. And a lot of times it's a numbers game. It's looking at 100 deals to find one, or nowadays it might be 200 deals to find one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, you're going to be looking at a lot of deals. You're going to be meeting a lot of contacts. I think the statistic that they say out there is it takes something like 27 investor leads to get one person that actually invests for you. So there's a lot of time, a lot of conversations, and a lot of effort invested into those relationships to find that one person. So it's just doing the same thing over and over again. And if it's not working, then you want to figure out what little tweaks you can make but it's rare that you need to revamp the entire process because it's a fairly simple improvement process. 
Yeah, for sure. And that's really awesome. Give us a, as we take turn the final turn to the final chapter of our show here, you mentioned, and I know as well that you have a, an underwriting session or course, uh, just a weekly, a weekly one. Tell us about that, the, when it is, the purpose of it and how it started. Yeah, absolutely. Every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern is a free underwriting session. Depending on the week, it probably goes anywhere from 90 minutes on the short side to three hours on the long side. And what we do is we review a different multifamily deal each week. Some of the deals are provided by me, some are provided by attendees. And we go through one deal each week, usually from top to bottom, how we enter the underwriting and the underwriting software. And then usually we go through the OM and figure out what follow-up actions are needed. We talk through that process. So initially when it first started, what happened is right before COVID started, my my team and I decided we were going to bring on some unpaid interns and, and we would find people who were interested in learning the acquisitions and underwriting sides of the business in exchange for finding deals in areas that we weren't actively looking at. Yes. So we found four or five guys, well, most of them were local guys we met at meetup events. And initially I would just get together with them every Saturday in person for a few weeks. But then as soon as the pandemic broke out, we couldn't do that anymore. So I said, why don't we use Zoom? I guess that seems to be what everybody's doing anyway at this point. So we'll jump on board. And then we started doing that. And I said, what's the difference if we have just the four or five of us, or if I open it up and we have 10 or 20 or 40 people? And initially, the first couple of months, I really didn't have a lot of momentum. It started slow. There was probably anywhere from four to 10 people per week, depending on the week. And, And then organically, it just grew over time. And for whatever reason, I guess people have been attracted to them and they refer a lot of people up until about three or four months ago. I never did any real marketing or anything with it. It was just strictly word of mouth and, yes. and hearing about it. And over nearly two and a half years at that point, you know, there was probably 850 people that had come to it at different times. That's amazing, man. Yeah. Just, I, you're providing value, like kind of sharing There's Obviously, initially, like you said, it's like, yeah, it could, the value could be both ways. But then you realize, which is really the nature of an entrepreneur, this could actually grow into something more valuable. And people obviously hear about you. And it's really, it's a need. It's also, it's a skill to need. Yeah. And a lot of people are not certain and want more of it or want some handholding and this, that, and the other. So that's amazing. That's amazing. All right, man. So what's the, uh, obviously give us the link or the, well, I'll drop the link in the notes here, but anything else, is there anything else you want to share with the audience to get in touch with you or what is the best way to get in touch with you? Anything else you want to share? So, so the best way is probably on my link tree and we can include that in the show notes. So that'll have sure. pretty much all my social media platforms and all the different things that our team has on there. Awesome, man. All right, everyone here at the Investing Stuff You Should Know podcast, we thank you for attending, listening to another great episode here. The story is really, I think it's, I resonate with it a lot. I had a construction background in some years past and worked up through different areas as well. Charles, thank you for being here, sharing what your story with us and for connecting. Johnny, thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Hey, later, next time.